Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the life of U.S. Congressman and civil rights icon John Lewis is being celebrated this week. We'll look at Lewis's connection to the civil rights movement in Florida through the Freedom Rides of 1961. One ended up in Tallahassee and one ended up in St. Petersburg. We'll discuss the letter book of Civil War era Florida Governor John Milton. Half of the letter book came to us, the Florida Historical Society, and the other half went to what was then known as the State Library of Florida. And we'll talk about the Ocoee Massacre of 1920. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's Dr. Wintley Phipps singing at a service for congressman and civil rights icon John Lewis held in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. Celebrations of John Lewis's life have been held in Georgia, Alabama, and Washington, D.C., preceding his funeral in Atlanta on Thursday, July 30th. In 1961, Lewis was one of the 13 original Freedom Riders who faced life-threatening violence to integrate interstate travel in the South. While the Freedom Rides are now seen as a pivotal point in the civil rights movement, it's often forgotten that two groups of Freedom Riders came to Florida. University of South Florida history professor Ray Arsenault is author of the book Freedom Riders, 1961 and the Struggle for Racial Justice. The idea was to go down the East Coast. It was so concentrated in Alabama and Mississippi, they wanted to test to see if there was compliance with the Supreme Court decisions in South Carolina, North Carolina, and into Florida. So they came down in these two different rides, one with 14 and one with 18, and one ended up in Tallahassee and one ended up in St. Petersburg. Before the first official Freedom Rides took place in the spring of 1961, an impromptu attempt to integrate bus travel happened in Florida in December 1959. A young John Lewis and his friend Bernard Lafayette from Tampa staged their own peaceful protest. They were uh, roommates at American Baptist uh, Theological Seminary in Nashville. Of course, Bernard was from Ybor City and uh, John was from Troy, Alabama, and they became the best friends and they're still best friends today. And they were going home for the holidays and uh, they decided sort of almost on a whim that they would sit in the front of the bus and see what happened. And uh, they got away with it, but it was pretty scary, actually, particularly after John got off in Troy. Uh, you know, Bernard had a long way to go to get to Tampa, and uh, they weren't sure they'd ever see each other again. The goal of the Freedom Rides was to integrate interstate travel in the South. This included bus and air travel and the services provided at terminals. The Supreme Court had already ruled on the matter, so the Freedom Riders were not even breaking the law. 
Well, not technically, because there were two Supreme Court decisions which said that they had the right to sit anywhere they wanted on the bus, or whether black or white, and they could go anywhere they wanted in the terminal. They could sit at any lunch counter and use any restroom. But those decisions weren't recognized by the kind of white supremacist politicians and leaders of the South. In 1942, James Farmer Jr. was one of the founders of what would become the Congress of Racial Equality, also known as CORE. The organization was dedicated to ending racial segregation in the United States through nonviolence. When Farmer took over as the national director of CORE in 1961, he decided that a freedom ride was needed to make sure that the Supreme Court rulings on interstate travel were being enforced in the South. Ray Arsenault. And he had all this correspondence on his desk about people who had been uh, discriminated against on buses and trains despite the December 1960 Supreme Court decision. So he said, well, this is what a great project for us. You know, we're going to shock the Kennedy administration into taking civil rights seriously. You know, Kennedy made no mention of civil rights in his inauguration, did not invite Dr. King to the inauguration, talked about spreading freedom all over the world to uh, South America and Africa and Asia, everywhere but Alabama, Georgia, Florida. And so they, they knew that they'd have to do something daring and dramatic to get the attention of the Kennedy administration. John Lewis was in the first group of Freedom Riders that left Washington, D.C. in May 1961 on separate buses bound for New Orleans. They made it as far as Anniston, Alabama, when one bus was attacked and set on fire. The passengers were injured and barely escaped with their lives. Well, the idea was a two-week trip. May 4th, they left Washington. Two buses. These are commercial buses. They're not specially chartered buses or anything. There are other passengers on these buses one Greyhound, one Trailways, and the idea was to take two weeks to get down to New Orleans and get there on May 17th, which was the seventh anniversary of the Brown decision, the school desegregation decision, and they were going to have a big celebration with activists in New Orleans. And, but they never made it. At least they didn't make it in the way they, they intended. Even before the bus burning in Anniston, the Freedom Riders encountered violent opposition. You know, the first week of the ride in the Upper South was pretty... Um, uneventful until they got to Rock Hill, South Carolina, and then a mob of young Klansmen attacked them, beat uh, John Lewis and others, and uh, later they got to Atlanta, and they met with Dr. King, they had dinner with him, and they tried to enlist him as a rider, say, well, why don't you come with us uh, to Alabama and to Mississippi and down to New Orleans, and he basically said, uh, thanks but no thanks. I, uh, my sources in Alabama tell me that the Klan is preparing quite a welcome for you people and I, if you were smart you'd probably stop in Atlanta. Don't go on. You're, you're risking your lives. Dr. King's sources were correct. The Alabama Klan did have big plans for the Freedom Riders. Ray Arsenault. When it got to Birmingham, Bull Connor, the Commissioner of Public Safety, made sure that the Klan had about 20 minutes to beat them. Uh, he said, don't kill them but I want you to beat them with an inch of their lives so they'll, no Freedom Riders will ever come back to Alabama. And of course, it was, it was done in front of the national press and it, it, it backfired. And they, they ended up in some, several of them in the hospital in Birmingham, and they, but they voted to go on. More than 400 volunteers would follow John Lewis and the other original Freedom Riders to continue the movement. Alan Kaysen grew up in the Washington Shores neighborhood of Orlando, Florida, and graduated from the historically black Jones High School in 1960. 
As a 19-year-old college student in Tennessee, the aspiring writer narrowly escaped a vicious beating during the second Freedom Ride. Alan was a very studious, uh, sort of a nerd-like kid, very smart, very intellectual. He always has a typewriter with him. He's always writing. And when he, when he was on the bus that went into Montgomery, they were chased by the mob, and the, the bus station was right next to the post office. And so he and Bernard and some others leaped over the wall with his typewriter, by the way, Smith Corona, and they, they, they run into the, for safety, into the post office, you know, and it was just like business as usual. People were, you know, getting their mail and with this riot was going on outside. Government leaders in Mississippi decided to arrest all of the Freedom Riders coming through their state, and the Hines County Jail filled quickly. The decision was made to send the Freedom Riders to the notorious Parchman Penitentiary. Historian and author Ray Arsenault. Parchman was a real turning point because it, it, it showed that these were not ordinary activists. They, were not, they really weren't susceptible to political pressure. I mean, you could threaten to kill them or you could kill them, you know. They weren't going to stop. I mean, they, they were, they were uh, what we now call a movement culture. That's what was happening. It's creation of this movement culture where they, they uh, sort of march to their own drummer. And uh, they really were beyond the traditional forms of intimidation, which had worked so well. Uh, they were willing to die. And, uh, and they just, of course, they drove the white supremacists crazy. I mean, you almost feel sorry for them. They had no idea what they were up against with these, these kids. And, of course, the, the local press in Mississippi and Alabama tried to demonize them as communists, that they were being directed from Moscow or from Havana by Castro and all this sort of thing. And, but as time went on, it became clear that these were just the kids next door. The same week that imprisoned Freedom Riders started being transferred to Mississippi's Parchman Penitentiary, two Freedom Rides came to Florida. One group of Freedom Riders traveled through the center of the state to St. Petersburg, the other group crossed North Florida to Tallahassee. Ferris Bryant was the governor. He was from Ocala. Uh, he was a staunch segregationist, but a pragmatic politician, and he saw what was happening in Mississippi. And, uh, you know, that, he thought that was not good for business, not good for Florida's image. And so even though he wanted to preserve segregation, he didn't want the violence. And so he made a tremendous effort, frankly, to work with Burke Marshall from the Justice Department to keep the, the, the most violent, most militant white supremacists away from the Freedom Riders. So there was no big violence. Now, he wasn't entirely successful. Um, when they got to Ocala, uh, several of the riders were, were, were beaten and imprisoned. Uh, it was uh, not, a, not a happy scene, but they, they had to leave them in Ocala and then they went on to, to Tampa, where it was also there was a bit of a ruckus in Tampa, but minor compared to what was happening in Alabama and Mississippi. From Tampa, the first Florida Freedom Ride made it to the final destination of St. Petersburg. When they got to St. Petersburg, uh, of course, they had the St. Pete Times, which was probably the most liberal newspaper in the South at the time. It supported desegregation. They did everything they could to give the Freedom Riders a a nice welcome, frankly. There was one white man who attacked one of the local black. Reverend McDonald was attacked outside where they were eating lunch. And, uh, uh, but by and large, there was no violence. The second Florida Freedom Ride carried an interfaith group of rabbis and clergymen. 
After enduring threats along the way, the Freedom Riders successfully desegregated Tallahassee's bus terminal but had difficulty at the local airport. Recently on Florida Frontiers, we told the story of the group of riders who had become known as the Tallahassee 10. When they were denied service at the airport restaurant, the Tallahassee 10 staged a sit-in. The next day, the group was arrested and convicted of breach of peace. Over the next three years, they appeal the decisions. They, they go to the, the circuit court and then to the state Supreme Court and finally to the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court would not set aside the convictions. So in August of 64, after the Civil Rights Act is passed, more than three years after the Tallahassee 10 had spent their time in jail, they come back to Tallahassee, they serve several days in jail, and then they're let out. And then in a great triumph, they go over to the restaurant at the airport and have lunch. Ray Arcido is professor of history at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, and author of the book, Freedom Riders, 1961 and the Struggle for Racial Justice. John Lewis's first freedom ride in 1961 inspired all those that followed that summer, including the two that came to Florida. Was blind, but now I see. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find discounted books on Florida history and culture. Listen to archived editions of this program, watch our Florida Frontiers television series, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, during most of the Civil War, Florida had only one governor, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. His name was John Milton, and he was actually a descendant of the famous English poet John Milton. He came from a long line of military men. He had a, a grandfather that fought in the American Revolution. His father was a veteran of the War of 1812. He was actually born in Georgia. He was a native of Georgia and became Florida's fifth governor in October of 1861. So he was inaugurated in 1861, was actually elected in 1860. And he held that position until his death, actually, April 1st, 1865. He purchased a large existing plantation that he named Sylvania, and expanded that plantation to actually become one of the largest in middle Florida, encompassing thousands of acres in what is now Jackson County near the, the city of Mariana. Milton was what we would consider today the archetype of what it meant to be a white, educated member of the aristocratic Southern society. So he was a lawyer by trade. He was, especially in the 1850s, became a very vocal proponent of secession. He was a slaveholder himself. He was not the most ardent supporter of leaving the Union and of, of actual open conflict. But when the issue came up, he became really part of that camp. So he actually first entered political life in 1851. He was elected to the lower house of the state legislature. 
served for a number of years and then left to work on the plantation. And it wasn't until the end of the decade when the movement towards secession from the Union really took off that he came back to Tallahassee and he was elected governor in 1860. And it really kind of happened rather quickly. And in between his election in November of 1860 and his actual inauguration almost a year later, the state decided and voted in January of 1861 to secede from the Union. And it was actually Milton who read the proclamation of secession from the steps of the Capitol in January of 1861. As part of the Florida Historical Society collections, we have half of Governor Milton's letterbook, although from the look of the pages, that they look like they've been through a fire. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So what we're looking at is the official letter book of John Milton. And a letter book is a collection of copies of every piece of correspondence that came through the governor's office or left the governor's office. These are wonderful. It's a chronological list of everything that was happening in the governor's office during a certain period of time. And as you stated, we only have half the letter book. So after Milton died in 1865, of course, his family assumed control of the plantation, all of his papers and all of his possessions. Um, And it was actually a grandson of his in the beginning of the 20th century who rescued these from a fire. Part of the plantation actually burned down. And he pulled these out of the charred remains of the house and was able to rescue most of them. So we're only missing, we think, between like six or eight pages of the original letter book. But at the time, he couldn't decide what to do with them. He wanted to donate them to some sort of historical organization. So half of the letter book came to us, the Florida Historical Society, and the other half went to what was then known as the State Library of Florida, which became the State Archives and Library of Florida. And that's where the other half exists today. Now, back in 2013, our organization partnered with the State Archives and Library of Florida, and they've digitized the entire letter book. So you can see the letter book in its entirety through their website, floridamemory.com. But the original copies both reside in separate places. In fact, the copies hadn't been reunited since about 1914 until that digitization process was done in, in 2013. But when you go through this letter book, it's interesting to see the progression of not only the war from the governor's office, but his unwavering support. So Milton was kind of interesting in that some other governors and and other legislators and even those who were supportive of the Confederate cause during the war, you know, as things were, were grinding on in the South was really, you know, decimated in terms of its economy. And there were a lot of of really serious issues. Milton was true to the cause. He was in constant communication with the Confederate government and was constantly fighting for states' rights, you know, if you will, and and for the the preservation of the institution of slavery. He really was a, a big supporter of slavery. And you can see that in reading through these letters. In fact, almost weekly, he brings up to a number of his generals who are in the field this perceived threat of some sort of slave revolt. And that was very common of the time, too. It was really a propaganda tool that a lot of those who were supportive of the cause used to bolster public support was that there was this threat of violence against the white population that was at the time holding power in Florida. Well, there's some disagreement about what ultimately happened to Milton, right? Newspapers at the time reported both that it was a hunting accident and that it was suicide. What we know is that his son found him at the plantation, Sylvania, outside of Mariana, in early April of 1865, and he had a gunshot wound to the head. 
now there's there's some evidence that he was preparing for a hunting trip and it may have been an accident. But there's other evidence, namely the fact that his last address to the state legislature, in that last address, he said that he would prefer death to reunion. And again, given his long history of his very staunch support of the cause, knowing that, especially from the office of the governor, he knew what was coming. He knew that the war was over. Federal troops were were essentially had surrounded Florida. There was very little and waning support for the Confederate cause. So it's very possible that he decided to take his own life. So it'll probably always be a mystery, but most historians will agree that it was probably suicide. What's interesting about these papers and, and other contemporary documents is not necessarily an understanding or a better understanding of the individual Milton himself, although that is important, but what's becoming more and more important for historians is to understand the experience of those enslaved peoples. Now, Milton in the 1860s owned at least 52 people that were contracted, that were bondsmen, bondspeople on the plantation. So of those people, what happened to them? So after May 20th, 1865, when the Emancipation Proclamation was read from the steps of the Capitol, the same steps that Milton read the secessionist proclamation four years earlier, what happened to those individuals? What were their lives like into Reconstruction in Florida, which became a very, very complicated and violent, tumultuous period for African Americans in the state? And that's the kind of history that, in digging through these documents and other material related to the history of the Civil War, that's becoming increasingly more important because it helps us shed a light on the human experience of a pivotal point in American history. And that's why I think these papers are important to not only preserve, but to, to dig in a little bit deeper and to better understand that, that experience. Interesting. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see John Milton's letterbook, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. July Perry is buried in Orlando's historic Greenwood Cemetery, a victim of the Ocoee Massacre of 1920. Holly Baker has the story. After World War I, tens of thousands of African Americans who had just served in Europe came home determined to exercise their right to vote. All over the South, especially in Florida, African Americans registered to vote in record numbers in the weeks leading up to the Election Day of 1920. Voting efforts in Ocoee, Florida, near Orlando, were led by July Perry and Mose Norman, two successful black businessmen who are well-respected by the local community. Dr. Paul Ortiz is the director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program and associate professor of history at the University of Florida in Gainesville. He is also the author of several books, including An African-American and Latinx History of the United States. If you are an organizer and you're asking a black person to register to vote in 1920, you're asking them to risk their life and their livelihood. And we know that Norman and Perry were, were respected because so many people in Ocoee apparently registered to vote. And again, the records have been quote unquote lost, but we do know that quite a few people did uh, try to vote on election day. The leaders of that movement in each locality were incredibly respected people. They were people who had the respect of the community so much so that they could get people to engage in an activity that was possibly life-threatening. 
I mean, I've gone down to, you know, local parks and the county fair to sign people up to register to vote. I never had to say, hey, if you sign this piece of paper, you're taking your life in your own hand, which is exactly what most Norman and July Perry are asking people to do in the months leading up to the 1920 election. On November 1st, the day before the 1920 election, the Ku Klux Klan paraded through the streets of Ocoee with megaphones, warning that not a single black person in town would be allowed to vote. And if any of them tried, there would be serious consequences. Despite the warning from the Klan, July Perry, Mose Norman, and countless other African Americans showed up on November 2nd, determined to vote. On November 2nd, groups of African Americans approach the polling places in Ocoee, attempt to vote, um, are driven away, they regroup, they try to come back to try to vote again. At this point, uh, white people with guns get involved, and they decide to teach black people in Ocoee a lesson that they will never forget. But at this point, black people um, are ready, and they fight back, and they defend their houses, they defend their property. And at this point, there's an electronic signboard to help promote news about the election in Orlando. When the violence breaks out in Ocoee, that signboard in Orlando is repurposed. The descriptions I've seen in the archives say that there was a, a message that was created in that electronic signboard to rally white people to get into their cars and to drive to Ocoee and to put down this Negro insurrection. This is not a mob. This is a very well-organized group of white men. Many of them are business leaders. Many of them are combat military veterans. They come very well armed. They're resupplied. The violence takes place over um, a long period of time. During the Election Day violence, at least 50 African Americans were murdered in a conflict now known as the Ocoee Massacre. July Perry was stabbed, shot, and lynched. Mose Norman vanished from Ocoee, never to be seen again. More than 20 black homes were burned to the ground, along with two churches and one fraternal lodge. Around 300 African Americans were displaced, and their property was transferred to white owners. Until fairly recently, the Ocoee Massacre was a dark secret that no one in the community talked about. It wasn't until the 1980s that African Americans returned to Ocoee, more than 60 years after the massacre. Today, a hundred years after the massacre, the Ocoee community is finally ready to confront and reconcile with their past. Dr. Ortiz. The 100th anniversary of the Ocoee Election Day Massacre, wow. And what an amazing opportunity we have to really reflect on so many things. You know, what Black people have sacrificed in this country, the current Black Lives Matter movement, which is about historical legacies. None of us were responsible for what happened on that terrible day, but because we know now what happened on that day, we're responsible for telling and retelling the story and bringing it into our schools, bringing it into our churches or synagogues or mosques. Let's take the next 100 years to do what we couldn't do, you know, the previous century. Let's tell the story for, you know, every opportunity we have. Whenever I hear someone say, oh, I can't be bothered to vote, Paul, you know, it doesn't really make a difference. It doesn't matter. I think of the Akoi story right away. I'm like, you're taking this right for granted that people literally died for. That's not a metaphor. It's a fact. The Akoi story was once a shameful story. There was an effort to cover it up because of the shame and the violence. Now it's being told for the first time in public. And it will always be a painful story. It always should be because it's an American tragedy. What happened in Ocoee is an American tragedy, but it should no longer be covered up. It should be told as frequently and as often as we possibly have the energy to, to do so. 
the names Mose Norman and July Perry should be remembered forever. But I also want us to think about the hundreds of anonymous people in Ocoee who suffer gravely for trying to exercise their citizenship. In 2020, the 100th anniversary of the Ocoee Massacre, Governor Ron DeSantis signed into legislation House Bill 1213, requiring that the story of the Ocoee Election Day Massacre be included in instruction on African-American history in Florida. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and healthy. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.